But I think it's definitely the case that when it comes to holiday destinations in the United Kingdom, there are some areas of the country that are inexplicably ignored. There are some beautiful regions of Great Britain, our country, that are uh, overlooked in favour of more familiar locations. Everyone here probably heard about how beautiful Devon is, how beautiful Cornwall is. We all know how beautiful the Lake District is supposed to be. Is it not the case that there are other parts of the United Kingdom that are probably equally as beautiful equally as dramatic, but for whatever reason, they seem to be passed over and they seem to be ignored. So parts of the UK, you can tell I'm a better Scotsman, can't you? There are parts of the UK that are inexplicably ignored. Now, if that is true for geography, which I firmly think it is, then surely it is also the case when it comes to God's word. I wonder if you see what I mean by that. There are certain sections of your Bible, my Bible, that we tend to pass over and we tend to ignore. All of us in here know Psalm 23, right? And most of us know Isaiah 53. We probably know well John chapter 3. But how many would put up their hands and say that they know well the book of Ezekiel? Okay, come on. No hands? Okay. Uh, What about... How many know well the book of Haggai? How well do we know the book of Haggai? You see what I'm saying? Pretty simple point. There are sections of God's word that seem to be, just like the geography of the UK, there seem to be parts of our Bible that seem to be inexplicably ignored. Well, this morning, what I want us to do just now is to look at a part of scripture that I think is criminally overlooked. And I say criminally for the following reason. See what you've got in your hands just now is a messianic psalm. What you've got in Psalm 31 is a psalm similar, I suppose, in tone to Psalm 22. It's a psalm that gives the reader, I think, an insight into the inner thought life. Why? What I, what I think it's saying. But it gives us an inner and in, and into the inner experience of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. It is a psalm that your Lord even quotes as he passes from death, from life and death. A psalm, a portion of scripture that is inexplicably ignored. So we're going to look at Psalm 31 in our time together just now. But before we do that, just a couple of words about the structure of the psalm. The structure of it. That sounds dull, it's not dull. It's helpful. Let me turn to you, okay, the structure. What did you make of the reading? Adrian comes up, he reads Psalm 31. What did you make of the psalm when Adrian read it out? I'll tell you the reason I ask you that question. is because a lot of commentators say this, that this psalm is a hodgepodge. It's a great word, isn't it? A hodgepodge. You read that this week. A hot, this psalm, a hot, this psalm, some commentators will say, is a mess. So they say that Psalm 31 is, you have sort of ideas of crying out to God, but it's kind of interspersed with ideas of like thanking God and praising God, and there's pleading. Like it's just, like, do you see, there's, there's kind of, this, this mess, all these things interwoven together, there's positive bits, a hodgepodge. A hodgepodge. I don't think it's a hodgepodge. And I want to give you a 
couple of things to notice about the psalm. First thing to notice, you've got to have it there. First thing is a clear division in the psalm. Now have a look at it. So you have got, first section is a section of prayer from the beginning of the psalm to verse 18. This is a heartfelt prayer, God. That's the first section. Then the second section, there's a division. And verse 19, you can maybe see even from the first phrase of verse 19, but from verse 19 to the end is a section of praising God for his goodness. So did you see, that's the first thing he's got to get about the structure. There's a clear division, right? Prayer, for the most part, then praise. Now, here's the second thing. You need to be on it with me here. You really need to be on it. Zone in to the prayer... And what you've got here, ready for it? What you've got in the prayer is a chiasm, a chiastic structure. And there shouldn't be any furrowed brows and there shouldn't be any confusion because I've mentioned this twice recently. Okay, what's a chiasm? Do you remember what a chiasm is? It's when a section of scripture starts from either side and works toward the center. Tell me you remember it. Pretend you remember it. A section of scripture works in pairs from the outer edges in pairs towards the central hub of the section. Look at it with me. You've got, at the beginning of the psalm, you've got pleading in prayer in verse 1 to 5. And that matches the end of the prayer in verses 15 to 18. Do you see you've got a pair at the beginning and the end you see, pleading. Then it works in the way, in pairs. So in verse 6 to 8, you've got trust in the prayer. And that matches up with verse 14. See, we're working in the way from the outer edges of the prayer. And do you know what that leaves? That leaves this large central section in the middle of the prayer. And it is a section of heartbreaking lament friends do you see what we've got even if you didn't follow that do you see what we've got we do not have a hodgepodge we've got in front of us this carefully crafted song and it's beautiful because it is a song that goes from turmoil and utter distress to a place of praising the lord our god that is the structure of the psalm now what do we want to do will we get to the text itself Let's do that together. So make sure you have it there in front of you. The first thing we've got to pay attention to is opposition experienced. Opposition experienced. Okay. Right. Deep breath. We have noticed one problem when it comes to Psalms and trying to understand Psalms. Sometimes the structure of Psalms is really difficult for us to get right, isn't it? There's another problem that you and I face when we try to understand a psalm. That sometimes in the psalms, the original setting of the psalm is quite difficult for you and I to pinpoint. Isn't that right? The original kind of context is sometimes quite difficult to get. I at home at the moment, in my devotional reading, first thing in the morning, I'm reading Second Kings, or I've just finished reading Second Kings. So you can imagine, I get my coffee on the go, first thing in the morning, pray, and go to Second Kings. That's that's me first thing in the morning. Okay, now I love that because you know how some chapters in Second Kings begin, do you? Have my coffee, open my Bible, and it'll say something like this. It'll say, 
in the 23rd year of the reign of King Azariah of Judah. And I'm a coffee, pray, think, yes. I've got so much of it mapped out. Like so many questions are, like I know the context now, don't I? Like I know who we're dealing with. I know where we are. I know, I know exact year this took place. So I'm a coffee pray and I'm like, right, okay, right. I, I, I get it, I get it. Now, you know as well as I do, it's not like that with the Psalms, is it? I mean, you know very well, if you read a psalm, sometimes you will just get an expression. Out of the depths, I call to you. And what did we ask? We asked, well, what are the depths? We ask, when's this happening? We ask, what's the historical situation? We ask, who's speaking? Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes the original setting of the psalms is very, very difficult for us to get. Now, you ready for the bad news? Psalm 31, no idea at all what the historical setting is of the psalm. I've got to be frank with you. Thankfully, the commentators are in the same boat. No idea. Yes, we know that this is a psalm of David. Did you get that from the title? And yes, we know that he is facing a terrifying crisis. David in this psalm, listen, is facing death, the threat of death. But beyond that, we can't be exactly precise about the historical setting. But I do want to make this very firm assertion to you, and it's ever so important for you understanding the psalm. The psalmist here is facing a dreadful threat from his enemies. You must have noticed that, did you? Boys and girls, did you notice it? Scattered throughout the psalm are words like adversaries, persecutors, people setting a snare for him, enemy, enemies. Now, can I again turn things to you, friends? What do you now want to know? What do you want to know? If this psalmist is facing a threat from the enemies, you want to know, if you're anything like me, what the nature of that persecution is, don't you? Like if he's beset by evil men, we want to know, well, how? What are they doing? Like what is the threat? Isn't that what you want to know? Please tell us what you want to know. Let me give you a couple of details. First of all, go to verse 13. Verse 13. Everyone look to verse 13 and see that this man is being conspired against. It is dreadful. Verse 13. Surely there are tears in this verse. Do you notice the words? David cries out, they scheme together against me. Do you see how it goes on a little bit? Do you see it? The plot to take my life. If, if your eye is there, if you look to verse 20, do you, do you see it repeated as well? God has protected him from, again, the plots of evil men. So you, you follow it, do you? There's enemies in the psalm. And they are scheming and conspiring against David. That's one detail. Let me give you another detail. Look at verse 18. What else are they doing? They are falsely accusing David Do you see what he he speaks about? He cries out the psalmist, lying lips. And then verse 20, he says, he said, protect me, O God, from the strife of tongues. So so it's beginning a bit, get a bit more intense. Like, isn't it kind of, and it's it's been colored in a little, there's a little more, but death, it's not just enemies. What they, They are plotting against him. And they are lying about him, these evil men, these wicked men. Now, 
Listen, in light of what we've got there, I think we have to just pause as a congregation and we have to take stock, we have to apply this. Because we know our enemy. And he is the father of lies. And I say to you, Christian friend, you should not take this psalm lightly. You should expect this sort of thing to happen to you. If you are living openly for the Lord Jesus Christ in the workplace, at a university, in the home, you should expect to be conspired against and, and lied about. And maybe you look back at me and say, but what do we do in such a circumstance? What do we do? Do you not see what God has given you today, this morning in the psalm? God gives you this morning a prayer to pray in such circumstances. I mean, it's better than that, isn't it? God actually gives you a song you can sing to him in your distress. I think that is marvelous and underrated. But there is something else that you can do, even more important. Christian friend, if you are beset, you can turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can turn to the Son of God and you know why, do you not? Think of it with me, please. That our Lord's enemies use these very same tactics to oppose our Savior and King. Now, listen to the words and focus on the words that our Lord, too, was conspired against and lied about. Yeah, hang on a second here. Hang on. How do we normally think about Jesus' persecution in the life of the church? Do you know what we do? I think it's a dreadful thing. We make it all about ourselves. And we think about it from our point of view. Isn't that right? Think about what we do, how we, we treat these things in, in the life of the church. We either apply Jesus' persecution to the persecution of the church immediately without thinking about it. We apply it to ourselves. Or what do we do? We think about the evil men that oppose Jesus. We think about them and we think about ourselves and we think about the, oh, the depravity of the human heart. We think about our, our wickedness. Do you see how precious this is? Do you see what you've got in Psalm 31? You are given here an insight into what that opposition felt like from Jesus' point of view. You are shown an insight into the inner thought life of Christ on the cross. Given an insight into what Jesus himself experienced and thought at Calvary. And I think if we read this psalm in in that light, with these words upon Jesus' lips, it changes everything and surely it moves us. Let me take an example, friends, please. Think of our Lord in that courtyard of the high priest with these Sanhedrin men meeting all of around all around him and they are plotting his downfall you remember that scene do you know and then you hear verse 13 here I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme against me as they plot to take my life or what about in those moments after our Lord has been interrogated by Pilate and he's been accused of inciting insurrection and accused of rebellion against Rome? And then we come to this psalm and we read verse 18 and this cry, Oh God, let lying lips be silent. Let lying lips be mute. I mean, doesn't it move you to read this psalm? Doesn't it move you? doesn't it 
do so all the more when you remember why it was that your Savior, your King, experienced this opposition of evil men. Why did he go through all of that? He did so because he loves you. The Lord Christ enduring the conspiring of men, the lying, so that you, Christian friend, would not face the lies and the false accusations of Satan on that day when judgment comes. We see here opposition experienced. Then secondly, we see also shame endured. Shame endured. Okay, let's have a little experiment for a moment. little experiment. I say a word to you. You tell me or you think through what that word means. Okay? So I say to you the word shame. What do you think about? Where does your mind go when, when I say is shame? Shame. I think more often than not, when we think about shame, we think about an emotion. Is that fair enough? You think about shame, you think about an inner sense of guilt. Ashamed, shame. Do we think about that? We think shame, inner sense of guilt, inner sense of remorse or regret. Shame. Now, if we're going to understand this, we have to appreciate that in the Bible it's different. In Scripture, when shame is mentioned, when there is a fear of shame, it's not an internal emotion or a sense of, of, of guilt. Shame in Scripture and here is about public humiliation. Do you see the distinction there? It's not about an inner sense of guilt, shame. What's shame? What's the fear of shame in the Bible? It's the fear of public disgrace, isn't it? Public humiliation. Now, I'm hoping, as I'm speaking to you just now, that you noticed that shame plays a major role in the psalm. Do you notice that the psalm begins with shame? The prayer ends with shame? Shame is the main point in the middle of the psalm. So you, you see how the picture is unfolding a little bit. This man's got the enemies attacking. And this man has been conspired about. This man has been lied about. But now we see as well that he is facing this hard breaking public humiliation on top of this attack from the enemies. There is public humiliation. Now, where do we go? What do we think? We're thinking, what, what, what is this? We want to know, what is this public disgrace, this public humiliation? What is it? How is it manifesting itself? Let me give you another couple of things. First of all, look at verse 11. In fact, do you know what? Just keep your finger on verse 11. Notice in verse 11 that it is the disdain of those close by. Try and check out some of the terms here. Do you see it? There must be tears again, verse 11. His heart is broken. He speaks of becoming a reproach. To whom? To whom? Do you see the word? He is a, a reproach to his neighbors. In fact, if you carry on in verse 11, do you see it, it gets worse? He's crying out to God. He's, he become a reproach to his acquaintances. So it's those close by. That's the first thing. Shame. Those close by. That's the first thing. Second thing. Look at the end of verse 11. It is disdain that leads to abandonment. Abandonment. Do you see it? The end of verse 11. You have these central figures, friends. They're fleeing from him and running away. They do not want to be associated with the shame. And that's bad. That's horrible. To be abandoned like that because of public disgrace and humiliation, that's bad. Look at verse 22. 
David looks back on the situation. And what does he say it was like? He says, it felt cut off from God's sight. So he is shamed publicly, publicly humiliated David. And he's saying, it was so bad that my friends left me. My friends left me. And not only that, I felt abandoned by God. Now, what do we do with that? I think at some stage, sermon, some stage, let's do it now. Some stage, what we could do is just thank God that we get to sing songs like this. Isn't that right? Isn't it? Isn't that a great thing that we don't just sing all the time, superficial, paper thin, worship songs? Jesus, I love you. It's not always like that, is it? What do we get to sing? We get to sing songs like this. I mean, songs that not only get to the heart of, you know, the depths of human experience, but get to the depths of human fear, fears we're singing about. It's a marvelous thing. In a moment or two, we're going to sing this psalm. It's a great privilege for us. And we could focus on that. But you know what we have to do? Friends, we have to apply this and think about the cross. And when you think of shame, are you not reminded what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you? Now consider it with me that the Lord Jesus Christ was he was stripped of his clothes and he was hung up on display that it was the most public humiliation. Like not in a little dungeon, not in a cave, not in a room, but deliberately, deliberately public and think about the nature of the disgrace. He was spat at. And he was scoffed at. And he was laughed at. I don't know about you, but isn't there something in the, in the depth of the human experience that just is petrified of public disgrace and public humiliation? Is that just me? Aren't we terrified of public disgrace? And here our Lord hanging, being spat at, being laughed at. By whom? By everyone. I mean, by the passers-by. It was deliberately located that the passers-by would see this. All these people early in the morning coming into Jerusalem, spitting at him, laughing at him, rebuking him. And who else? Roman guards. I tell you, there's no one in this room that would not be utterly terrified of these men. I mean, brutes of men, like intimidate men, men that you look at and be scared about. And what are they doing? They're laughing at you and they are spitting at you and saying things off you. Is it worse than that, is it? What about those who should have been on your side? What about the religious elite they also scoffing and, and laughing and, and, and it's an atrocious thing. But is this not the case? That these two elements in the psalm of disgrace were particularly evident at the cross. Weren't they? Do you remember what those two things were? This was disdain from those close by. Now think about that at Calvary. 
You had our Lord there, and he's surrounded by... Who is his neighbors at the cross? You have the, the thieves, these rebels, these terrorists. And what were they doing at one point? They also, his neighbors, shouting at him and, and, and launching abuse and casting doubt in his identity and his faith in God. But what was the other side of this here? It was humiliation that led to abandonment. And what did our Lord endure for us? He sees his friends in the run-up to the cross and they leave him. And he loves them. He still loves them. He cares for them. He's done everything for them. And they run and they leave him because they don't want any part in his shame and his humiliation. Does it get worse? What did our Lord know? At Calvary in the darkness of Golgotha. What did he know for you? He knew the very forsaking of his heavenly father. He knew the forsaking of his God. And it is unimaginable. And I have thanked God this week that it is unimaginable for the people of God. This experience, it is. We will never know it. It is unimaginable. But even in the depths of this humiliation, do you know what you see? You see the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. What a contrast here. Verse 17. The psalmist, David, remember it's David. Look what he longs for in verse 17. He wants vengeance. Look at it in verse 17. Lord, let the wicked be put to shame. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I don't want this public disgrace anymore. I don't want this humiliation. Give it to them. I don't want it. Turn the tables, Lord. Give it to them, this humiliation. And don't you praise Christ for his grace? Because what a complete contrast with Calvary. Because instead of calling for vengeance, what is it our Lord and Savior pleaded with God? What did he say to his father as he hung in humiliation? Even there, even with such public disgrace, we hear, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Friends, surely you look at Psalm 31 and you praise Jesus. What a savior. Think of it, that the son of God enthroned in the cherubim, the son of God in all his glory. He comes and is publicly humiliated all that you might be redeemed. We see opposition, experienced, shame, endured. And then the last thing, we see trust evidenced. Trust evidenced. Uh, We know that if we're struggling with a portion of Scripture, and we can't make head nor tail of it to start with, we know that one thing we can do is pay attention to the ideas and the terms that the Holy Spirit repeats. We know that, don't we? If we're struggling to make sense of a portion of Scripture, if we pay attention to what the Holy Spirit repeats, what the author repeats, it will give us an insight into the meaning and some of the themes of a portion of Scripture. Now, what have we seen? There's enemies. We've seen shame. If you turn to the beginning of this psalm, right to verse 1, I think we can see 
One last theme. Now, I'm not going to trace it all the way through the psalm, believe me. I do want you just to work it out for yourselves from the beginning. So think about what the theme is. Look at the repeated words at the beginning. You've got, boys and girls, can you see them? At the beginning of verse 1, some of the repeated words. You have words like refuge, words like rock, words like fortress. Then in verse 5, everybody got verse 5? Did it jump out at you? I think it did, didn't it? Verse 5, you see the psalmist committing his spirit into the, into God's hands. So what, what do refuge, rock, fortress, committing your hand, spirit into God's, what is that? There is this theme of relying upon God. There is from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm, this very clear, evident theme of trusting in God. Now, just as uh, in the previous points, I gave you two little subheadings. Let me do that again. First is this. It's not trust in God, but it's trust in action. It's trust because, you see what I mean? Well, what did we say the bulk of this psalm was? What did we say it was? We said it was a prayer. And so do you see it? This psalmist is in the most almost indescribable crisis of his life. He is in trauma. And what does he do? He does not just rest on the fact that, oh, default position, I trust God. What does he do? His faith is active faith. He calls on God in this crisis. This is exercised trust in God. And friend, Christian friend, there is surely application there for you. Because if you're anything like me, you think like this, that when a crisis hits our life, you think and assume that you're going to be very, very prayerful about it. Do you, you, are you like that? Certainly I am. I think if a trauma happens later down the line, I know I'm going to be really prayerful about it. Well, will that be true? And if you are a Christian today going through a crisis, is that true for you? I mean, is there not less than in Psalm 31? Do you know what we've got to do? We've got to do as this psalmist does. We have to, in a crisis, pray sincerely. Do what he does. You're in a crisis? Then pray through every facet of that trauma. Pray through every emotional element of it. Bring it to God. Every aspect, every facet. Bring it to God. Do what he does. Call God's covenant character in prayer. Pray. Put yourself in God's righteousness. Exercise your trust. But then we end with the second element of the trust. Will you follow me for the end of it? Yeah. It is trust vindicated. Trust vindicated. I was going to say, if you know the psalm well, but I'll tell you what I did this week. This is how geeky I am. I went on our website, LCPC's website, and I, I did, I went to the sermon page and I did the filter at the top. Everyone, of course, knows what I'm talking about in our sermon page and the, yeah. And the, there's a filter button on the sermons. And I checked to see how many times, uh, in the last 20 years, uh, or more than that, probably 35 years, how many times Psalms have been preached on at LCPC. I wonder if you'd like to guess how many times. That was about 200 times. That's a lot, right? 
Like 200 times a guy has got up here and proclaimed God's word from the Psalms. 200 times. Can, can you guess how many times Psalm 31 was preached in the last 35 years? <laughs> so never before has Psalm 31 uh, been preached in here. So I was going to say, if you know the Psalm well, but maybe you do know the Psalm well. Do you? If you do, you know this, that there is a moment, and I hinted at it earlier on, there is a moment in this psalm where everything changes. There's a really strange thing in the psalm, a, a point in the psalm where the tone completely alters. And I want you, because I'm ending with this, I really, really ask you, I beg you to look at it with me. Look at the end of verse 18. Look at the end of verse 18. Now, everything changes here. So you know where we are. This is the end of the prayer. Remember I said that at the beginning? It's the end of the prayer. Up until now, the psalmist has been crying out to God about this crisis and death. Up until, And then from verse 19, tone changes. And from verse 19, the psalmist is now looking back on what happened. From a bit of a distance, he looks back on it. And he's no longer crying out in crisis. Do you know what he's doing? He's praising God. So it's almost like, now listen, it's almost like at the end of verse 18, something has happened. It's almost like at the end of verse 18, an event has occurred. Now, all manner of suggestions have been made about what happens at the end of verse 18 in David's life. So you read the commentators and they're suggesting maybe a miraculous event happened, you know, to get to deliver David. Maybe a priest, somebody suggests a priest or a prophet intervenes. But we don't know what happened to David. All we know from verse 19 is that it was a public vindication of the psalmist. Do you see that in verse 19? Look, he speaks of something happening to him in the sight of the children of men. Something public happened to David. Now, what's the honest truth this morning in a communion service? Our primary concern is not David. Our primary concern is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you consider that, is it not remarkable? Is this sound not remarkable? Because yes, every word of trust here could have been said by the Lord Jesus Christ, couldn't it? What trust? Through the turmoil, the trauma of the cross. Jesus even quoting the expression of trust at the cross. In your hands I commit my spirit. What trust? But I am asking you, as the people of God this morning, what was the event in Jesus' life? What was the moment, the event that took him from this near death, this deathly experience, to a place where he could rejoice in God? What was the event? Was it not his resurrection from the dead? That as we see in the psalm, something of the psalmist's joy in experiencing public divine exoneration. Are we not pointed to, listen, are we not pointed to the joy that was in the depths of Jesus' heart as he knew public vindication? How? Joy being raised by the Father to everlasting life. And I think quite honestly this morning, it is that... That should be in the forefront of our minds as we come this morning to the table of the Lord. You know how it is 
So often we come to communion and we treat it as though it were a funeral. Yeah, we remember what was done for us. Yes, we remember pain and torture that Jesus endured, but we do so as though Jesus were still dead. As though he were gone, as though he was vanished somehow. I plead with you, Christian friends, don't do that today. Don't make that elementary mistake. This morning you come as a child of God to God's table and you remember what he endured for you. You remember these details, but you remember this. He is risen. You remember the opposition. You remember the attacks from the enemies. You remember the shame. You remember the disgrace. You consider it all in bearing your sin. But you focus on this glorious, miraculous truth. In the next few moments, as you come at the table, by his Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is with you here today. Friends, I'm sure you agree it is the greatest of shame that Psalm 31 is not better known by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get an insight into the inner thought life and experience of Christ as he bore your sin. May it be this morning that like the psalmist, your trust is in this God. This God so full of grace that he has provided salvation for all who will fear his name. And he's provided that salvation at such, such a cost. Friends, let's bow in prayer to God. Let's pray. O God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of redemption and salvation. We thank you that you have provided freely eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Christ upon this cross has quoted Psalm 31 surely to send us to the psalm to learn more of what you endured in bearing our sin. Lord, all we can do as your people is lift up our voices in gratitude to you. We thank you that in Christ our sin is gone. It is no more. Lord, hear us as we worship you. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.